Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number 39, coming at you live and direct from the Vibe Junkie Studios in Oakland, California. Season's greetings, Famiglia. We are so grateful you are tuning in. Episode 39 of the Upful Life Podcast is proudly brought to you by Path to Panacea and their Luminosity. Quote, tonic herbs, proper nutrition, adequate rest, connecting with self and joyful exercise are our primary prescriptions for well-being. Close quote. Rosemary Gladstar. Check out Path to Panacea's Etsy shop for handcrafted herbs blended with love and intention to illuminate radiance and vitality with every sip. Check it out, pathtopanacea.com, P-A-T-H-T-O-P-A-N-A-C-E-A, pathtopanacea.com. These thoughtfully crafted blends will inspire you to see your kitchen as an herbal apothecary. Botanicals are used in herbal medicine to help revive, tone, and invigorate systems, serving to nourish and restore balance. So when you brew a cup of tea, take this time and steep in grandmother's wisdom, inviting in an abundance and offering gratitude. These packages of loose leaf tea are all hand-lettered with positive affirmations to uplift your spirit and calm your brain and body, and bring a smile to your soul. Bless it. PathToPanacea.com Luminosity Shop small businesses and independent artisans this holiday season. Path to Panacea, y'all. Also want to shout out the good folks at Herb and Music, the healing of the nations. Herb and Music H-E-R-B-A-N-M-U-S-I-C K 
cannabis and music have been cosmically intertwined since the beginning of time, and modern music, marijuana culture have both enjoyed a chromatic relationship, a defiant, righteous dalliance between these once forbidden fruits. So Urban Music, the fresh new online magazine, explores this storied history between the worlds of sound art, spirituality, and raised vibration. Urbanmusic.com Please visit our people. The Healing of the Nations, urbanmusic.com That's right. Welcome back to the Up Full Life podcast. This is episode 39. And wow, what a month and change it's been. I do apologize for it. About a week and a few days, maybe 10 days late on this, give or take. Crazy times, obviously, here in the States and here in California and everywhere. I want to send a love and energy healing vibes if needed to anyone out there that's uh, struggling at this particular moment in time I needed to take a step back myself hence the delay on the pod and I know the virus has uh, pendulum has swung back in a major way and people are reeling this holiday season so I just wanted to start off with good vibes doesn't matter where you are in the whole divide um, you're loved and I hope everybody is, is just doing what they need to do to get by and uh, we got some work to do on a lot of levels and part of that is just putting good energy out there so that's where I wanted to start also want to shout out my man Derek Barris for episode 38's incredible interview uh, he was just a joy to speak with and Big up yourselves, large up Derek Barris. Please, if you're so inclined and have the time, rate or review the Up For Life podcast on Apple Podcasts or your pod player or platform of choice. It does a good deal to steer the algorithms in our direction. So please rate and review the Up For Life podcast. You can also email me directly with feedback constructive criticisms, suggestions, partnerships, cross-pollination, positive vibration, at al. 
please email b.getz at upfullife.com, b.getz at upfullife.com. Got a lot of cool shit on the horizon in the next month, uh, namely my passion project, the favorite albums of 2020. So being that it's 2020, there'll be 20 favorites, 20 more, a few other random singles, seven inches, oddball releases in the mix. Got ahead of it this year, uh, really dove deep. Just in the past month, there's just been a flurry of tremendous releases. Um, What comes to mind, the Lettuce Remix album for Resonate Remixed. 25 years in the making, Kruder and Dorfmeister's 1995. Uh, There's an album called Everlasting by a new partnership, Sons of the James from RVA and La Speciale. Ancient Homies drops on Friday, and it is a motherfucker. So uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg for what I've got coming on the 20 favorite albums of 2020. You can look for that in a couple weeks on UpfulLife.com. I'm going to start dropping short vids to promote the pod and talk about other things. I see the Conspirituality Cats, Derek Barris and Company, among others, uh, Kraz, etc., doing little snippet vids or... All kinds of cool shit on the social platforms, video content. I don't know if I'm going to do a video podcast just yet, but I'm going to dip my toe in the waters, but do it appropriately in uh, DIY style. Um, So look for that content. Also going to be rolling out a Patreon in some capacity in the next couple of weeks. It's been a long time in the making, long overdue or so I'm told. People often ask how they can support. Well, putting something together will include bonus content and other perks. It is my distinct honor and privilege to welcome the one and only Mike Dillon to episode 39 of the Up for Life podcast. Quoting from uh, a bio of his, how many artists can claim being praised a quote punk rock provocateur, a quote jazz vibraphone visionary, and quote percussion virtuoso in the same sentence there's only one mike dylan now it's whether through his affiliations with artists like les claypool 
and the Fearless Flying Frog Brigade or Fancy Band, Ani DeFranco, Ricky Lee Jones, his epic collaborations like The Mighty Garage A Trois, The Dead Kenny G's, The Legendary Critters Buggin', or bands he's fronted like The OG's, Billy Goat, or Harry Ape's BMX, and of course his band of outsiders. And I've been a fan of Mike's since I first saw him perform live, which was with the aforementioned Garage Trois at the Sanger Theater on May 4th, 2000 at my first Jazz Fest. We discussed that in the interview. I'll play a little bit of that music afterward. Um, but ever since, I had my eye on this punked-up jazz maniac. <laughs> uh, and then he rolled with Carl D., uh, it's not mentioned in that paragraph of his bio, but yeah, he was in the Tiny Universe touring band and on a couple of their records, but he was, uh, you know, mainstay for 2002 and 2003, and always seems to show up at Jazz Fest, Jam Cruise, etc. And you know, you know, this is a big Tiny Universe house, so I got intimately familiar with the many talents of Mike D through that. Of course, Critters Buggin', Harry Apes, been a fan of this dude. In so many ways, and of course he is an outspoken uh, unicorn of sorts in the music community and really in the world at large. So um, I've always paid attention to his uh, colorful espresso rants uh, on his various social media or his live streams, wacky uh, videos, and his personality in general on stage is uh, just... (laughs) One of a kind. So there's also the offstage Mike D. And he's a profound, articulate, wise motherfucker. And I don't use those words lightly. And you're going to find out why in this deep dive that's forthcoming. But naturally we talk about his music and his musical relationships. Uh, He's got two new albums out on royal potato family i want to acknowledge that the interview itself is pretty punk rock because i myself was speaking to mike from the beach in jersey uh the surf was incredible while i was back east because of some hurricane action tropical storm whatnot so um On his end, uh, he was doing whatever he was doing while we were talking, and I wasn't about to ask uh, Mike Dillon to do anything other than what he was doing, because he gave us an absolutely thrilling roller coaster ride of a conversation, and he mentions a few times that we're getting a good coffee rant, so uh, understatement of the year. We get about a dozen epic coffee rants among uh, myriad lessons perspective comedy horror stories so with that uh, i ask you to bear with the sound quality like i said it was pretty punk rock so we got me on the beach mike d maybe talking to some neighbors every so often uh having a snack after a while it was a long interview I did a lot of little snipping. I did some, you know, EQ magic. So I think the content speaks for itself. And it's it's appropriately DIY, punk in Drublick, Mike D. You might hear me 
uh, jumping in a little loud or a little crackly. And uh, I appreciate y'all sticking through because there is uh, some real gems in this powwow. So we've been listening to uh, Mike Dillon and Punkadelic tracks off the Shoot the Moon LP. Started with Driving Down the Road, then you got a Psilocybin Donut and a little bit of Apocalyptic Daydreams right now. So you can check that out on Royal Potato Family, uh, Mike Dillon Band Bandcamp, and I'll be playing some more music after the interview. But before we start, you know I had to roll out the Band of Outsiders a little bit of 7 a.m. at the Jazz Fest, and then we'll hear 90 Minutes with the one and only Mike Dillon on episode 39 of the Up for Life podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy. Thanks for making time for the Up for Life podcast. I'm stoked to be a part of the Up for Life podcast. And we're stoked to have you, my friend. It's a long time in the making. Yes, indeed. I need to start me a podcast. Oh, you would have an amazing podcast. I, I enjoy doing these uh, with you. The one I did with Frasco was a blast. You know, I've done a couple of them, so... Yeah, man, the people like to hear from you, especially in this time when there's not any performances and, you know, the music industry is at a standstill. You know, hearing from the artists is reassuring just to check in. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, let's just, like, get the state of the Mike D. Union. Uh, what has the last seven months of your life been like? Well, uh, like everyone else that was uh, playing gigs and touring and doing that sort of scene it was a sudden halt to everything and uh first for me was i imagine a lot of other folks was oh shit <laughs> uh financially yeah. how am i gonna survive this you know i just finished literally two months of touring with the mike d band and we had played our last date that saturday the first saturday of march and I crisscrossed the country twice. And, um, and I was like, all right. Well, that, that's good timing. And um, 
I was supposed to do a little bit more stuff down in New Orleans in March and then start up uh, basically a full round of touring with Ricky Lee Jones playing percussion and vibes for her. And that all got canceled. So on one hand, I was very grateful that I had done my touring most, you know, for, for my band, hit all my markets and said hello to all my friends. But then, um, you know, Ricky Lee had a big year plan. We were supposed to be in Europe. You know, we had, she had a jazz fest date on Chantelli stage, you know, the, you know, and then all the, you know, just all the little festivals she was doing. I had some, I had summer camp lined up for my band with, you know, Mike Dillon and Punkadelic with Norwood and Brendan and Brooks. And, uh, you know, that was going to be great. So I, you know, then it was like, all right, well, take a deep breath. And at first it was, um, part of me was relieved from just the constant travel because as you know, I pretty much keep on the go all the time. So it was nice to park the van and right away I was just like, all right, well, I'm just going to write music and I, I have a nice setup. And, um, I, I, I was already over Christmas, my Christmas break before the tour. I'd been in a good writing flow and I, started a bunch of songs and I started writing again and had so much stuff. And then Matt Chamberlain from Critters Bug and I started sending him tracks and um, he was sending me back stuff. And right away he and I started collaborating via the internet. He has a great studio out in Los Angeles. So he, he sent me stuff and I called my buddy Chad Mize up who I'd done Rosewood and a bunch of the Go-Go Jungle records, a bunch of Malachi Paper records, and uh, even the first Mike Dillon band record, Earn, with Carly and Adam. So he lives in Kansas City. That's where I parked my van at Peregrine's house. My my lady, my it's, it's official now. We did get married on the DL. Oh, wow. Congrats. Yeah. yeah. Mazel tov. Y yes, indeed. Peregrine Honig. So, Beautiful. I've never really hung out with her, so or anyone in my entire <laughs> life, because I'm always like on the road, like, oh, we got two weeks together, awesome, gotta go. So I learned how to have a relationship, and that's been a very interesting um, just to be around anyone. You know, I realize like I'm an escape artist. Um, so I called Chad up, and I was like, yeah, at first, I don't know about you, but we were all everyone's just like, I don't think we saw anyone for two months and then finally at the top of may i was like hey are you uh you feel like recording and he's like yeah let's do it so i started recording some people had sent me some tracks to work on, on their stuff so i just started recording songs with chad again just like the same way i did with rosewood and next thing you know i have like 30 songs i think i got 30 songs in the can i have um with you know with all my friends Kevin and I are about to release on Bandcamp in a couple of weeks. The first one called Shoot the Moon. And we can talk more about that in a minute. And then I got an acoustic record. So, you know, I just got into recording mode. And that was really nice for me because I think with most guys that are on the road all the time, we don't get the luxury anymore of sitting in the studio for weeks on end or right. you know, just really just being able to like listen to it and be like, all right, well, let's go back next week and make it, make it better. Let's do this. Let's do that. Oh, you know, and then with everyone being at home, I was able to like call up 
you know, like I said, Matt already, and then be like, all right, uh, I need bass. So I got my boy Nathan down in New Orleans to do it. All right, uh, I need some trumpet. Called Steven Bernstein up. He did some, you know, he had time. He was like, how are we doing this? Is this a rush job? I'm like, no, it's not a rush job. We're doing it like, <laughs> but, you know, we all got time. He's like, awesome. I said, Brian, you know, he's like, exactly, cool. You know, just like being able to, like, all of us to do something a little different, you know. Um, uh, got Rob, you know, Shane Dario, who produced Dr. John's last record. And he's, you know, Hollow Notes musical director. He, you know, just sent him a text. You know, he, he and I worked on the Ricky Lee Jones record that I helped co-produce with her last year, a couple years ago. So, you know, everyone's got studios at their house now. And he was like, yeah, send, it, send me tracks. So he did a bunch. Then Robbie Mangano, who... Seahag. Um, yeah, you know, Seahag. He threw with Ricky Lee and I, so I started sending him tracks. So next thing I know, it's just like, wow, this is sounding amazing, you know? like, And we're just able to sculpt it. Seahag's like, try this, try this. And I was sending something, all right, I need, like, butthole surfers meets... Zappa, can you do that? Yeah. Or, well, but <laughs> Heart. Man, the stuff Seahag did is incredible. And we all know why people like Dean Ween love Seahag, you know? Like, yeah. He's like, dude, I love Seahag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, not everyone knows Seahag, but all of us who do worship him. Yeah, he's a special breed. I. Yeah, put on to him years ago in the, new, the whole New Hope scene. I'm from the Philly area, so it wasn't too far from us. And yeah, he's he's one of a kind. That's all. I can't wait to hear it. So so yeah. it sounds like these are different projects: the punk thing, the acoustic thing. You're just recording. You're just kind of purging all these ideas. Yeah, you know. And then the other side of it is, it's like I was already like I've been listening. I've always had a soft spot for. Of course, we we got into drum and bass back in the other days, Square Pusher, Aphex Twins. And, you know, I love electronic music. So Me too. I had been, like, I, I bought Ed Mann, uh, one of his extra Malakats, and I got, I bought last summer, I also got, like, a uh, polyphonic synth. And... I got a drum machine, another drum machine right at the beginning of quarantine. And the next thing I know, everyone's streaming. I'm like, well, shit, I've been wanting to do a one-man band thing. So a lot of this came out of, like, this fucking around my drum machines and my synths. And, you know, I've always been like, wow, Keller or, you know, whoever who's able to really pull off a one-man band thing by themselves and rock 10,000 people, it's pretty amazing to me. So, you know, I've done solo gigs here and there uh, with bands, like little clubs, and it's always hilarious because you can bring humor into it and you can engage them. So when I first started doing that over the cell phone and streaming, it was like, oh, this sucks, you know, because there's no interaction. But right. you were, I, I was still playing, so I had to focus on just like, all right, I suck at this. This thing sucks. It's like starting a new band that sucks. I don't know if, if you saw the band of Outsiders with Carly and Adam when we first started, but that band, the first game, we were like a high school jazz band that was not even good, like a bad high school jazz band. <laughs> but we kept playing, kept getting better. And, you know, from my process of whatever I do, it's always been like, all right, you suck. Let's try again tomorrow. It's going to be better. And that, you know, when I started playing vibes out, I was horrible. I'm, you know, 
so I, I just, I'm, I'm always into the process of like, you know, progress, not perfection, but just keep making progress. So this has been a good time to, to make, make, a, and like, you know, like the acoustic records, I got to slow my brain down. It's ahead of my voice. Like, you know, <laughs> like that song, Suitcase Man, you may have seen it. It's just like marimba and vocals. I've never done a record like that, but I've worked with Ricky Lee Jones and Ani DeFranco and Anders and Ryan Montblu, and those guys can get on a guitar and captivate an entire crowd of people by themselves or 20 people by themselves. Whatever it is, they can get on a guitar and vocals and be very compelling. So I was just like, all right, you know, Anders has challenged me to like try to do something like that a couple of times. Back in the, you know, along the way, yeah, why don't you try to do something heartfelt instead of all this punk rock shit you do all the time? It was nice to have downtime and writing time. Um, but of course, it's a global, global pandemic and people are dying. And uh, so all that emotion, and I think a lot of that is coming through in the music that I've been writing. I mean, a lot of the freaky butthole surfer songs is straight up making fun of the the selfish American mentality. I'm, I'm not going to say it's an individual thing. It's just a herd mentality of like, fuck science, fuck intellectualism. I'm not going to wear a mask. This whole thing's a hoax. I don't know anyone who's had it, you know? Meanwhile, yeah. 200,000 people have died. And every day, more and more people are getting it. And, and you know, and, and it's not just those folks. It's also like I got some dear friends who I love, and they're more on the health food intellectual fucking libertarian side of like, it's my life. Don't tell me what to do. And I get that. I respect it. I ran, read some Ayn Rand when I was 14. <laughs> um, you know, I loved Rush. So of course I had to check out Ayn Rand, but cause Neil Peart talked about Ayn, or I think it's Ayn, but um, I'm a redneck. So I call her Ayn Rand, man. I checked out some Ayn Rand. Uh, <laughs> we definitely are living in dystopian orwellian like it, it's weird so on one hand you know it's like all right i get to like make music and i'm and it's always been that way for me like creativity and making music has been the freedom from whatever you know it's not like the world just got fucked up i'm 55 it's been pretty fucked up all along the way i've seen the injustices whether that's racial injustice, you know, I, I, I remember the night Rodney King got, you know, when that verdict came out, and I remember that whole thing, and when, when the cities exploded, and, Me you know, you're, 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 and I know you do too, it's just like, all right, is some change going to happen, you know, and, and it's just utterly ridiculous that there are people in this country that thinks that because that Black Lives Matter is a communist Marxist movement. This isn't even about fucking politics. It's about like, can't everyone be a human and deserve basic human rights? Yeah, you know? decency. This is human rights. This is decent. You know, oh, you're a rich basketball player and you're speaking out for people's rights and they're going to tell you to shut up and dribble like that one Fox lady did to LeBron. It's just like, come on. It's great that you're channeling like these this thinking and this this cultural moment into the music, and it sounds like you're into the singer songwriter realm. Yeah, I'm trying to. I mean, you know, it's like anything else. You play 
play percussion, you play drums, you study your ass off, you work all, you work. And most of us weren't child prodigies when we started. Most of us had to really do years of studying. You know, that's the other thing I've been doing during this pandemic is taking tabla lessons. You know, I've been with Alokdata for 18 years, but now I've really had the time to do the FaceTime lessons with him every other week and and focus on it, like like daily tabla practice. And even if I feel like I'm not ready, like every time I take a lesson, they're just, they, you learn something from it. So, you know, I'm learning and then I'm paying him money that I'm getting from live streams and it's keeping him alive because, you know, most musicians, the unemployment benefits we're qualified for, it's not that high. No one has savings, you know. I mean, he's like 60, 67. And, he, and you know, you know he, he was just like me. He texted me going, oh, my God, can you take lessons from me? And then he realized, that, wait a second, you're out of work too. Like, everyone was out of work. But then, like, this, that was one beautiful thing. Like, I've just seen people really supporting each other and helping each other like like Chad he's straight up told me I the work I've been giving him has kept the studio alive so just within my little world I, I know that's what we all have to do is support each other and keep, keep everything going you know I'm really worried about the, the clubs that have been open nightly for years or, you know especially the smaller clubs yeah that don't, don't have the big money behind them to stay alive, you know, already a bunch of things I played have closed down. They're done. Yeah, just yesterday, the Rex in Pittsburgh. The Rex closed down? Uh, yeah, yeah. Ben Ben wrote a heartfelt letter, posted uh, it, yeah. I hate to be the bearer of that bad news. Yeah, we're all crushed. Ah, uh, God, so many magical nights at that place. Yeah. Yeah, it's a microcosm of really what's happening, man, and I'm glad you brought it up because the, the independent rooms... Are are really in danger. Tepatinas is in danger. You know, yeah, it's interesting to watch how everyone is just adjusting. I mean, we're all like survivors in our own right. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's just. I mean, even like Bruce Springsteen. Like I saw someone sent me a clip. They're like, you may not be a Springsteen fan, but he's really worried about working musicians and people that work. You know the backline crew guys. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. You know. I mean, all those, all those crew guys. I mean, the trickle down economics. Everybody is out, and they'll be the last ones to go back. You know. Yeah. So yeah, man. It's you know, we can do streams. We, we've been supported, and you know, I have to say, at first the stream thing started. The money was incredible. I couldn't believe it. And then, you know, I think I, I'm only speaking for myself, but I, it's, a, it's an ebb and flow. And you know what? Some days if I, I do a lot of pop-up streams and I might just get 40 bucks or 20 bucks. But for me, any 20 or 40 bucks is great. That means I get to eat tomorrow. You know, I, get to, I can go buy some groceries and cook. And not everyone in this country even has that. Like, I'm so grateful, you know. But it it affects you know everybody, um, and it's it's frightening, man. And I, I didn't intend to make this interview about that, but I'm glad that we discussed this like the reality of of what's happening for the arts community, the music community, the venues, the crews, 
Um, we did a poster that raised money, 14000 for, like, the crew and sound men and stuff through Crew Nation. And, like, that felt, like, really good to do. But that was in April, May. And, and for the most part, you know, nobody's playing shows. And, and I don't think we should till it's safe. But at the same time, like, I'm frightened for independent musicians, independent clubs. And, yeah, all the machinations. Even what I do, you know, is predicated. The music has to play for me to have something to write or talk about. And I've always loved your writing and what you do. I mean, we're all involved Thanks. in this thing. I mean, you know, even the little guys at the trailers that go out and just chase the summer festivals around. That's like their money for the, a lot of them for, for the All year, year. yeah. It's our <clears throat> harvest, you know? And then the fires and the, like, the hurricanes are hitting. My boy down in, who plays in my band sent me a picture. His machine shop flooded, you know? I mean, a lot of people are going through rough times already. And then the environmental stuff. I mean, it's yeah. just like I mean, we've, we've, fled Cal <clears throat> we've fled California because of the fires. We're in the Bay Area. Went to yeah. Oregon, then Oregon got on fire. So I'm actually talking to you from my mom's place at the Jersey Shore, where uh, I was greeted with some hurricane surf when I got here. I just got out of the ocean. I'm surfing on the beach I grew up on, riding waves. It's pretty awesome, but at the same time, you know, it's just sort of sobering to think that who knows what's going to happen. And it's been a good way to get away from all the constant bad news and, and just the politics and, uh, you know, all the division you referenced before about, you know, I even, I want to transition a little bit into Rosewood. I know, I guess, was that already done before COVID? Yeah. Let's talk about that for a bit. Yeah. That was, that was done. I did that in 2000. I started writing it at the end of 2017 and, first recording session was in january of 2018 there's there's a lot of emotion in the record you know that that's applicable for what we're living through now you know because i i understood that it wasn't written in response to what we're living through yet it's very apropos so where were you at in your life and what uh you know what was the sort of inspiration or motivation to make that record because it's certainly a departure from the punk stuff and the Mike Dillon band, Go Go Jungle, all that. It's it's a new lane, uh, at least to my ears. Yeah, it totally, totally is. It's, um, I think it really captured some of the stuff I've been doing with my percussion ensemble down in New Orleans and um, just the simple orchestration and working with a large percussion group. I took that into recording and doing all of the instrumentation myself. And then with Earl, when he dropped into town, the, the, the two visits he made to us from Berlin, it was just a no-brainer to have one of my favorite drummers come and um, play, the, play the drum set parts. And, um, you know, I purposely saved, saved the parts for him to do because, you know, uh, I'm a frustrated drum set player inside a musician's body. <laughs> and, um, you know, I do play drum set. I like the way I play drum set, but, you know, you know, we all love amazing drummers. And that's the best thing about being a percussionist is I've been able to play with a lot of great drummers. I mean, which is, that's a whole other subject we'll talk about later. So, but anyway, having this amazing percussion ensemble with all these, killer percussionists, killer drum set players. People have come in and out of it. It's sort of an you know, open door to, to people to come play when they're available. 
just hearing that sound in my head from my music box shows and then trying to take it into the studio and, and recapture that. And then what we talked about already, um, taking more of that singer-songwriter approach to uh, crafting the song from this record. You know, it's, it's instrumental. It, you know, working with Ricky Lee, working with Ani. You know, even Les Claypool, he, you know, to me, the reason why Primus is so popular and so great is he has a really unique singular writing style. And I've just always sort of considered him the Tom Waits of thrash metal, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> he hates that word, but we'll just call it the, what they call it, the, the genre. You know, whatever it is. He's made his own genre, but he, he can't. He has. That you know, there's nothing that sounds like Primus. So, you know, and then the same thing with like hanging out with Mickey and you know, we all I I'm a we I've been a Wing fan forever. But they were really good at writing. At first it's like, oh wow, they're they're prints on this song or they're so you know, they they take all these genres, but then like hanging out with him a little bit in the studio, you just see like how serious he is about crafting and writing. You know, He's he's such a great guitar soloist because he's writing solos on this. You know, we all know the guitar solo from you know, Roses. You know, we can sing it right. You can sing the solo right. You can sing the solo like that kind of concept. It's like it's very inspiring. Um, We did one song that hasn't. I don't even know what happened to it, but and I remember he goes. Mike, I'm going to write a great solo for you. And we never, he never did. <laughs> we never finished the song and somewhere, you know, it's really funny because it's like, that's, uh, but, but just spending more time in the studio. And even that for Rosewood, I had more time to spend because I was hanging out in Kansas City with Peregrine. And unlike New Orleans where, even when it's not jazz fest, if when I'm there, I'm doing two gigs a day. There's this gigs everywhere, and that's why I moved to New Orleans to become a better musician back in 2006. When I'm in New Orleans, I'm playing all the time, and say like Function and Broke, and those, we'd be recording, and they'd be like, all right, I gotta go, I gotta gig with Singleton and Johnny V. I'll see you later, and that's great, but you know, when I started hanging out in Kansas City, I was sort of like, ah. All right, Frasco's in town. I'll go hang out with him and talk some shit. But it was sort of like, besides Peregrine and a couple of jazz guys I know from when I lived there 20 years ago, there was not much of a music scene that I was involved with. And it was like, you know, so I was just like, oh, what am I going to do? And then I just started, of course, I'm just going to write music. So it, it became like, Kansas City was for writing and recording, and New Orleans was for playing gigs and, you know, doing that. So that was the transition I was going through 2018, 2019, and then and pretty much what I was doing up until the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit, and it was like, all right, guess I'm not going to New Orleans. You know, I had a two-week stay coming up in New Orleans, you know, at the end of March. It was like, there were like 10 gigs lined up and a couple of doubles, and it was going to be great. So, it all this comes back to, well, all we got is the studio right now. So, I think a lot of people, I look forward to hearing what comes out of a lot of collaborations. I mean, I don't know if you know much much about Matt Chamberlain. 
was Critter's Bug. Yeah, I mean, I know him through the work with you and Skerrick and stuff, but not independent of that. Yeah, I mean, he is like one of the, you know, he plays with Bill Frizzell. He'll go out and do gigs with Bill Frizzell. He'll go out and work with Brad Meldow. He did Brad Meldow back in the day. Or Soundgarden needed a drummer because Matt Cameron was touring with Pearl Jam. It could only do a few Soundgarden. So Matt auditioned and Josh Freeze auditioned. You know, the two top studio guys. And, you know, Josh is badass. I don't know if you know much about Josh, but he of covered course. Paul on Quebec. And he played with Nine Inch Nails and Devo. And he's, yeah. he's incredible. He even so did Matt, Guns N' Roses for 15 minutes. Yeah, he even did Guns N' Roses. <laughs> so Matt and Josh are just like these incredible studio drummers that are amazing live drummers. But they get so much work in the studio, they don't have to, like, you know. Get in the band. And get in the van all the time. But I've been lucky to do many van tours over the past 30 years with Matt. We, we, we came up together. You know, we're in a band called Tin Hands that he left. And when the Edith Brickell and the New Bohemians, he and the new drummer, he became the drummer. And the next thing you know, he was on tour. So Earl came and filled his spot in Tin Hands. And then when Edie Brickell and New Bohemians, um, they stopped touring. Matt had a break, and he went and he did the first Pearl Jam tour. Um, and then he didn't want to do the gig, so he gave the gig to our friend Dave Aberzies. And then you oh, know, before Aberzies, wow. Matt was before Aberzies, and I remember Matt uh, Aberzies was in a band called Doctor Tongue. Billy Goat was playing a gig in Dallas, and that was like right when we got a big record deal. We were selling out venues everywhere. Matt was at the gig hanging out. He saw Aberzies play. He's like, dude, Aberzies would be good for Pearl Jam. And I didn't really, you know, he played me the Pearl Jam stuff, and he goes, bro, these guys are about to get the big push from Epic. They're about to be big. And then all of a sudden, you know, Even Flow came out, and those guys were huge. And our buddy Dave went from being the guy I see around town on bikes playing gigs with us to like, oh, wow, look at Dave in that video. <laughs> and it was, you know, his life changed. So anyway, there's just all these little connections. And and Matt and I have remained friends for all these years. Okay, and then I, then Matt moved, had done, he left. The, when Edie Brickell, they were out touring, opening for Bob Dylan. G.E. Smith, who was the musical director for Saturday Night Live, was also the music director for Dylan. So Matt and GE became friends. Next thing you know, Matt was like, I'm not going to do Pearl Jam. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play in Saturday Night Live so <laughs> for a couple of years and lived up in Woodstock. You know, and then next thing you know, he moved to Seattle. And he stopped in my house in Kansas City on his way out there. And he's, like, calling me. And the whole jam band thing starting to take off. And, like, you know, Modesty Martin Woods, Tory, and Grey Boy All-Stars. I, I remember I was... Billy Goat was in San Diego. I had an off night, and I went and got Modesky Martin Wood and Gray Boy at the Casbah, super small club. And then Chamberlain called me the next day, and he'd been telling me about Critters Bugging. He's like, dude, this was like 96. He's like, our percussionist who played in E.D. Brickell and New Bohemians left the band. We need a percussionist. You want to play with us? I was like, sure. So I, I got, that's how I went from like the punk, funk, metal scene to like jumping into the jam band world. I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was cool that people were going to see instrumental music, you know? Yeah. And then next thing I know, I'm playing with Critters Bugging. And he's like, yeah, there's this crazy sax player who plays sax to a Marshall. And he's fucking <laughs> incredible. And, 
So I landed in Seattle, summer of 96. And that's a whole other story. We'll go into that in my book. But that was a crazy adventure. And the next thing I know, then like on that tour, we, we did bump, bumper shoot. They had a record com- coming out and on Loose Screw, which is uh, Stone Gossard's label. And, you know, just to me, I look back at that time period, and that's now 24 years ago and 30 years ago, that whole, all, everything we're talking about. And it's, 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 it's amazing to see how this connection spring into creative uh, adventures. And, that are still, they're still manifesting. That are in still the, manifesting. It's incredible. And I appreciate you going down that way back machine because I really wanted to ask about how you ended up in sort of the, the neo jam world. Cause I always hear you talking about Texas punk and Billy goat. It's like a different lifetime for you, right? Just take us back there. You're, you're in Texas at that time, right? Billy goat's a Texas band. Yeah. Billy goat's a Texas band. And it literally started when I got thrown out of that band, 10 hands. Cause I was partying too much. And, uh, they got sick of my shit. So Matt, once again, Matt was off the road from the New Bohemians and all those. And, and we just did a gig as sort of a joke where, you know, and the Chili Peppers were, were blowing up. I'd seen them a couple of times. The Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique had just come out. And, you know, I had an advanced copy and I was walking around going, got arrested after Marty Goff and jumping on the float. My man, MCA's got a beard like a billy go. Ooh, ooh. You know, yeah, the disco call. Those, <laughs> disco call, dropping those lines on the boutique. And, and and also, like, NWA and Public Enemy and Stetsasonic, ARS1, Boogie Down Productions. I mean, like, all that stuff. LL Cool J, and Trouble Funk, and the Junkyard Band. Like, you know, I remember getting that, that Def Jam's compilation, the first volume getting that on cassette tape and, and back then when you would find something you put it in your walkman and go whoa that's incredible you know and like being tw- 22 smoking weed and hearing groundbreaking hip-hop hearing the first public enemy record yeah going, oh my god you know and then we were already into punk rock and stuff and you know i'd, I'd stumble into a bad brain show it's just sort of like you know, nowadays, all the kids discover everything on the phone. And then they're like, oh, that looks cool. I'm going to go see it. It's too immediate. Like, you could just click. It's I, so you, immediate. You know, right. I remember hearing about the Chili Peppers. Like, there's this band from L.A. They're coming. you got to see them. They're cool. You know, they wear socks on their cocks. <laughs> sure enough, Flea came out with just a sock on his cock. But he went into, I was already into Miles Davis, of course, because I was a music squad. He started playing Jean-Pierre from We Want Miles and Man with the Horn really fast and going, we got the biggest cocks, we got, we got the biggest cocks, we got, we got, we got, we got, we got, we got the biggest cocks. And also the drummer goes, one, two, three, and they go into fucking a Hendrix tune. Like twice as fast, punk as fuck, and the place exploded. Oh, man. And we're all stage diving. And, you know, that was way cooler than fucking my phone and YouTube, you know, and live streams, you know, so like, I get it, you know, and to me, that's like the passion or, or seeing bad brains, that first note when HR, I had no idea what was about to happen. I'm just a goofy 
white kid from the suburbs who went to music school all of a sudden was side stage smoking a joint with Daryl Jennifer, you know, and that was awesome about punk rock. It was just like all kinds of people were in that club. It was sold out. It was packed. There was a riot about to explode. One one acts on the show had got was a spoken word artist. I want to say, God, who was it? It's not Karen Finley. It was or Lydia Lunch. It was someone along those lines. I have to go look in my notes and call my buddy through the show. But they had already stirred up this punk rock show pretty good. And also Greg Yen from Black Flag, his band Gone was the other band on the bill. They had already played. And then HR came out. And Corey Glover confirmed this for me. He did like a double gainer backflip into the crowd. And they started with Pay to Come. It was just like a nuclear bomb going off in my brain. I'm like, oh, my gosh. And. You know, it makes me sound dated, but I, you know, I hope that kids still stumble into shows and see something. And because here I am, thirty year plus years later, this is way better than the fucking espresso that I ran on. Just thinking about <laughs> the power of like those amazing shows. Yeah, you hear people wax about bad brains. I never gets old, man. Anyone who caught those early, you know, 81, 82, 83, 84 bad brain stuff, they talk about it like it was a religious awakening, you know? Yeah, and, you know, KP said we, we became pals talking about bad brains, you know, when we opened for Clutch, you know, it's like, it is a religious experience, you know? Hearing him talk about sitting behind Lemmy's rig when Clutch opened for Motorhead. He was like, it was church, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and when you talk about kids today, like, I remember, you know, I'm, I came up in the cassette era, a little bit beyond vinyl. You know, I was bo- I'm 43 in a few months. Yeah. So I still, I still had to, like, search for music. There wasn't the internet. You know, you had to save up enough money to buy one record. Then you bought that record. You had to like it. You know, like, there was no other option. You couldn't go to Spotify or YouTube. You spent your money that you saved from, like, three allowances for one tape. And, uh, you got, exactly. you got, you got to know that tape. And you know, me, I did all the nerd research, read the magazines, you know, any way I could find out what was happening. So now you talk about with the phone, it's just so easy that the, the adventure of finding the music, like the deliverance, when you finally walked in the club and you saw the bad brains or heard flea do that miles riff into Hendrix, like it was like a validation for all the effort of finding, seeking, manifesting, and, and that is gone today. And I don't know how you replace that when everything's so available in seconds. Yeah, you know, and I wonder if it, if it backfires too, you know, I mean, just for my own shit, I know that we did some gigs down in Florida, and it always helps when you have someone who's seen you do your thing when you go to a new market, and they'll be like, no, yeah, they suck on their, their internet stuff sucks, but trust me, you're gonna love it. And this young woman came up to me and goes, "God, you guys are great. I mean, I checked you out on YouTube and it sucked, but this is incredible." So, <laughs> yeah, the you know, live experience is is you can't replace it. You know, it's like you know, but it is a new generation. Even back then, the bands that got, that got the biggest were the ones that were able to manipulate and make badass videos. And then, you know, Les was really smart with that. With uh, Winona had a big brown beaver. Yeah, Jerry was a race car driver. You know, I saw a race car driver the other day. I'm like, he made great videos in the MTV age. Yeah. That was our YouTube. You know, if you got got on MTV, you got huge. Right. 
Yeah. I remember that was my introduction to Primus was the John the Fisherman video, which was really simple. He was like in a boat and then some live footage, but it was artfully done. And it was like, wow, this is new. This is different. The little YYZ tease, you know, and I was hooked. I've been a Primus fan for life. And I was thinking if, if it was less that brought you into my life, but it wasn't. I, it was the garage at the Sanger. That was my introduction to Mike Dillon. Yeah, that was such a special friggin' night. I mean, you know, it was. I had no idea what I was stepping into with that. I just, I'd been off heroin for three months. I'd literally finally got 90 days because I just kept going back and forth all through the 90s. It was just like clean up for a little while, but I could never get 90 days without relapsing. And to me, it was like the universe rewarded me for when I finally got past 90 days. I showed up for that that little weekend with Garage Trois, and I'd been a fan of Charlie's forever. Uh, and getting to sit in and just play congas with those guys. You know, Stan and I met when through Critters Bugging when um, we did shows in Seattle at Bumper Shoot, and we had an instant rapport. And um, it, just, it just seemed like that whole, you know, whatever you want to call it, jam instrumental thing just sort of really started opening up for me in 2000. Um, I, at that point, I was totally sort of over the, the punk funk thing. Oh, you know, whatever. It wasn't that I was over. It was just time to do different stuff. So, and the vibes, been working on it. And then, you know, all of a sudden, Carl D asked me to tour with him. Yeah, I saw you play with Carl probably two dozen times back in those days. And you always added wonderful touch to their sound. And, you know... It's kind of one of your lesser-known contributions. It was, you know, what you did with Carl. You know, two-plus years you were on the road with him, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, you know, Carl, I still love him. You know, I even played on a record of his. I think the last one that came out, he did. He caught, I was in L.A., um, yeah, back in 2018. And we were able to make it work and record. So through the years, he's had me record. And whenever I can play with him at Jazz Fest or on the Jam yep. Cruise, I do. I mean... I loved he's those days, man. I really did. Yeah, he's just another dude who's so inspiring and practicing all the time. You know, that that that's what that's the thing I guess as far as the jam scene that I love the most is the musicians are all into getting better. What I was talking about earlier, all into practicing and and you always see guys walking around with their guitars or on the car. You know, Carl is late to his own shows most of the time because he's practicing. You know, right. it's not because he's doing drugs, like back in the day people would be doing. He's practicing, you know, like working on fucking giant steps or whatever. So, um, yeah, those were great times. Then all of a sudden, Les, you know, scared, met Les, and then we had a rapport. The next hand, I spent 10 years touring with Les, you know, Pastor Jazz once or twice a year. Yeah. That's like the only time I really play with Scared anymore. And I was thinking about that before you called. I'm like, you know what? It's awesome that twice a year we can get together. I can get together with my, my old pal Scarrick and we can just lay it down and freak out. And that was heavy, man. You, that, that Joy Theater show last year was serious, that bastard jazz. So I'm glad that that's a thing. Hopefully once we have concerts again, you guys can get after it again. But, I, you know, yeah. when we take it back to the Sanger for a sec, that night, that was my first Jazz Fest. And uh, I went because I, you know, I was a big Fish fan and a big Primus fan. And that was, you know, the first Oysterhead show. 
and it was just the add-on that y'all were opening, and no one really knew much about Garage Etoile. That might have been your second gig, if I'm not mistaken. You did the Leaf once before, or whatever. Yeah, but but y'all stole the show. You know, it, I left that show talking about Garage Etoile, not Oysterhead. It was a it was a seismic performance, and I think that was the embryo for Jazz Fest, After Dark, Bonnaroo, Jam Cruise. That night was like worlds colliding and all the different, the, the diaspora went in a million directions. And you are emblematic of that because we spent 40 minutes talking about all your collaborators and networking and organic, you know, sort of relationships musically. And they're really all born, you know, they used in my world out of like that sort of jazz fest explosion that began that night. Yeah, I mean, you know, Superfly didn't, Bonnaroo didn't even exist yet. I can remember being backstage and talking to Les for a minute. Uh, the Colonel, you know, we had opened. Billy Goat had opened for Primus once back in 1990. They saw that flyer that I posted on our first West yeah. Coast tour. And Ten years later, basically doing having the same experience, but with Garage and and another big theater. So those were my two my first two encounters. Well, no, that was the third encounter with Les. The other time was really funny. We were mixing the Billy Goats record that we did with Jerry Harrison out in Sausalito. We were out there, we mixed it, and then I, I look out, and fucking Les and Carlos Santana are out in a fucking <laughs> parking lot. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man, this is out. And in the studio, we recorded They were like, our engineer was like, well, we just mixed our record there. We recorded it in Texas. But the engineer was like, yeah, Sly Stone works here all the time. He had two nitrous tanks in the, underneath the console, so he could just be, like, ripping <laughs> it up. Oh, boy. Yeah. Man. Dude, days. So many things to unpack, and I, I have to acknowledge, I wasn't going to bring it up unless it happened organically, but I myself struggled with opiates for about a dozen years, and I got it about four years, four-plus years in the rear view, but I've... I've always gleaned a lot of perspective and inspiration by how frank and honest and transparent you've been about your journey. You just referenced, you know, I didn't realize you were only 90 days off junk when that Garage Trois happened. But if you wouldn't mind, just maybe talk a little bit about your your journey in this world of jam music where everybody's so fucked up all the time. And you're maybe the highest guy in the room, totally sober. Yeah, it's, you know, the funny thing about, Total sobriety and and junk. It's, it, it really is the equal but opposite reaction or whatever drug you're on, you know, when you're completely in total oblivion. Because when you're totally sober, it's really fucking intense. You know, uh, a good friend of mine, he is like, sobriety is fucking hardcore, man. It's fucking hardcore. You know, and he's been sober for a while now, and I'll leave his name out of it to protect his anonymity. But, you know, I love, you know, that's one thing, I, you know, or even like the, the straight edge punk guys that don't do junk uh, or any drugs, but they were always so hardcore because they were super, howdy, super straight edge. And um, um, for me, yeah, I don't mind being honest about it because... I guess the idea is, hang on a second. Sure. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's funny. They're, you know, Peregrine's working on this movie 
for her big fashion show she does. So they got this intense scene going. So it's awesome being with another artist. Because half the time, I'm just like, if she's doing her stuff, I'm just like the guy getting groceries. And they'll be like, oh, we need a tumble track. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm involved with the movies. But, you know, the honesty about addiction, man, you know, I've lost so many great friends. I'm sure you have, too. To this yes. disease. And you can look at disease like, oh, it's like, you know, COVID, which it is. Addiction is a disease or dis dash ease, you know, looking to fix that, that hole in our soul or, or, or a hole in our brain. A lot of it's, it's our brains. We just fucking can't deal with our own heads and this world around us. So we get loaded, man. I mean, come on, man. The first time I did a shot of dope, I snorted it a couple of times, but when I did a shot of dope, I was like, I'm never quitting this. I finally feel fucking complete. I, I, and every ounce of my body being is settled. Finally. Finally. You know, and I already was doing yoga and meditation. This was like 90 the first time I shot it. I was already fucking around with like going to eat and getting wheat grass. I lived near one of the first Whole Foods. So there was a bunch of us that were into what I call wheat grass and heroin. You know the type, like you ate well, but you didn't go all the way to do the homework of getting complete bliss like the way the Dalai Lama or someone, you know, like really being disciplined and quitting. You know, to me, dope was like quitting before the miracle. And it became a miracle that worked really efficiently for a long time. But truthfully, it really didn't. Like you said, you had 12 years, wasn't it? A good 11-year run before I finally got some clean time. And then in 2004, I relapsed from morphine a couple of times uh, after four and a half years of sobriety. Then I cleaned up again and got eight years. And at the end of um, the band of outsiders, I relapsed again, like literally one time. scared the living shit out of me. And, and then I got onto a drinking trip for like three years, just drinking beer off and on. And that was really weird, like the whole beer thing. You know, and I'm not disciplined enough to be like, I'm just going to drink, I'm just going to smoke weed. You know, weed didn't, I, I don't know my blood type or whatever, weed was awesome in high school. And then all of a sudden one day in the middle of college, I was smoking, I'd become the most paranoid motherfucker on the planet and hiding in the corner. And yeah, it turns on some people as they get older, I've heard. You know, and I heard that it's like the Ozzy Ozzy. There's a term actually in science. Like, people like Ozzy can do tremendous amounts of, of hard drugs, but they really don't work well with weed. And I don't, you know, Peregrine told me I was that blood type. Because, you know, I, I can't smoke. I, I have to smoke just like a little bit of weed, like one baby hit, and it would work for me, and I wouldn't get paranoid. But if I took like a full hit, I'm fucking so paranoid. It was just like, it stopped being fun. But heroin, oh, I was like, well, I don't feel any paranoid. I feel great. Oh, let's throw a little cocaine with it. And, you know, I just became, more was my drug of choice. And I nearly died several times. I don't know. I overdosed a handful of times. And then well, opiates. And same thing with shooting coke and shooting speed. I, I mean, I did it all. And I don't know why. I guess I'm physically strong or something that I didn't drop. Because there were several times I amped out. Try to help other people stay clean. And I, I've been on a good flow again for a while now, you know. So I haven't had a heroin habit in 20 years. So, yes, that's a success. There was a couple of slides 
and there was a few periods there of, I'm just going to drink IPAs. But I finally had to be like, nope, can't even drink. There's different methods, and I, I appreciate your complete honesty and transparency, and I've, I'm pretty active in a couple recovery communities. I'm not totally abstinent. I still smoke weed all the time and enjoy beers here and there, but yeah, no opiates, no hard stuff, period. But, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people are scared away by the dogma of some of the, like, recovery groups and stuff. So when somebody like you, who's as honest as you are, both about your methods and the fact that you do fall down, relapsing is a part of the gig, man. Like, recovery is not foolproof. Yeah. And, and so your ability to acknowledge that, to tell your story and to keep trucking, that is, like, doing the work, doing the service. It's inspiring to me, and I know I'm not alone when I say that, like, it gives me strength because, you know, especially now with all the emotions from COVID and, and the racial uprisings, like, you know, some days you want to get high and it's just, or at least I can speak for myself. And it's like a reminder that, you know, there are out there people feeling the same way that aren't getting high. Like when I read a, a political rant of yours, that's only off coffee and anger, you know, it sort of fills a void for me where I don't have to maybe get so angry or engage in destructive behavior because, you know, I'm seeing you channel that in a different direction. So I just wanted to acknowledge that and thank you. Come on, when this thing kicked in, part one reason why I cleaned up was the music was starting to suffer. And I was like, I got to clean up for the music. I'm this, you know, I, about, you know, pretty early on, I would miss gigs with Billy Goat, sold out gigs because I was off shooting dope somewhere, you know. And it's fucked up. That's how, that's what addiction does to you, whether you're a yeah, mom. 100%. Or a musician, it will make you neglect and leave a kid at a house, you know, or, or leave your band, which is your baby. I used to do that. And I love playing music. I drive 100,000 miles a year and 250 gigs a year because I love it. But drugs became more important than music. And that's, when you're an addict, of course, it's like, it's like, oh, I drink water. Oh, I'm an addict. I do drugs. It, it, it's just, I'm just a garden variety addict. And I have no dogma, like, on what you do to save your ass. I know what works for me. And, yeah, you know, I'll go to those, like, maybe some 12-step groups because I haven't been a perfect addict. In my head, I can be around those people and feel like a total failure lapses I've had, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know what, there's no wrong or right with addiction. It's life and death. There's, exactly. There's just life and death, and if you can smoke weed and stay off heroin, you know, fucking Johnny V's been off dope for 40 years. He loves weed. It works for him. Of course, I'm not going to be one of those guys that judge fucking Johnny V, because they like to smoke weed. He's been off dope forever. You know, I mean, Miles quit doing dope, but he kept drinking and was able to do blow or whatever he did. Yeah, it's you know? about staying alive and, and eventually quality of life, you know. And, yeah. and and I think that that's, you know, you you often, like, reference the, the, the jazz cats of the day. Like, you know, you're a punk guy when I think of you. But when you're talking about your inspirations and stuff, I've noticed you often reference the jazz cats of the day. And, and much like, you know, heroin ravaged the punk world... It also did the same for jazz. What do you think's the the thread there? Why uh, do such you know creative anti-establishment you know artisans seek that warm blanket of junk? Well, that's a tough question. I know. 
well, yeah, they, it's not a tough question. I mean, it's obvious. It fixes you. And, um, there's also geopolitical things, of course. It's like, you know, back in the old days, they, they, they pumped heroin into the, to the, the black communities. And then they started pumping crack into the black communities. You know, there's, there's always some political shit behind it, systematic racism and oppression. And, because there's profits to be made. You know, it only became an opiate epidemic when, you know, the little white girl Soccer moms. moms are getting the oxy habits. Nah, the dope and the amount of addicts, if you probably looked at it. I mean, I think William S. Burroughs in one of his books said that we've had the same, um, you know, throughout man's history, about the same amount of population is is an addict. And, and you know, and, and I think we all know what the definition of addict is, a person that once he starts using it, is not going to stop. He's addicted to it. He, he can't, like, be, all right, that was cool. I'm, that's dangerous. I'm never doing it again, man. That's really bad stuff, you know. That's the way smart people are that aren't addicts. That's why when somebody overdoses and then they come out of it, they shoot up again because they're not. I addict. remember the first time my, my first wife overdosed. We were like, I was so scared, and I brought her back. And I was like, we're never doing that again. That was horrible. And fucking later that night, we're scorned, you know. The first night I had a gun put to my head and, and robbed, and the, the, they fired the gun into my head, but the fucking bullet, I don't know why wow. I fucking died. Like, I was just scored a big fucking, for like three bands, I had like $1,000 worth of dope in my pocket, and I just got away, they got my bike, and they got my shirt, and everyone in the apartment complex, no day Dallas, summer, 1991, or no 92, they were screaming, run, white boy. And I ran like a motherfucker. It's like life before your eyes, shit. But did it matter? You think I didn't go back to school? That's the addiction. Anyone, I, any way I can help other people break that cycle? I'm, I, you know, because that's what's kept me sober. I mean, I wanted to fucking get loaded and say fuck it during this pandemic. I don't see all this positive shit. Oh, I've been writing music and saying positive. No, there were days that I was like, I fuck this. This planet sucks. I hate the, our leaders. I hate everything about it. What the fuck's the point? I'm going to go get some fucking dope, and I'm going to get high as fuck, and I'm going to check the fuck out. Like, fuck it. Like, and at this point, for me, drugs ain't about getting high. It's about, like, I'm ready to check the fuck out. You know, and people that don't understand, oh, my God, he's suicidal. No, I'm, I'm too much of a wimp to be a suicide to go get a gun. I'm just going to, like... If, I, if it happens, it happens. But it is a slow ver version of suicide. So we need our friends. We need our counselors. We need everything we can do. We need to work out. We need to fucking play music. All that shit just to beat that little part of our brain that says, this fucking planet sucks. I'm going to check out. That. So I, I am so grateful that you were willing to go there and discuss, you know, that, that darkness. Because it's important for people to know, like, we're among us and we do recover. Yeah, we do, and, and we got to be there for each other, whether it's just like, yeah. sometimes I'm out at these festivals, I see someone else, and I, we don't have to talk about it, it's just like, if I see Ivan, it's like, alright, thank you, Ivan, you know, or, or whoever, or Anders, or, or even just my friends that aren't, like, oftentimes, you know, I got more respect for the, not more respect, I got just as much respect for the guy who's got 30 years, like, my main guy who's helped me stay clean, he's, you know, he went to prison, he lost his fireman job, he lost everything he had, and he's just like a 70-year-old dude, he goes out of his way to help other addicts stay clean, and, and the fact that he was in prison, 
and he's got out and he's lived a really good, beautiful, simple life, man. To me, that's just like the greatest thing. He didn't like have like the stage to get clean to or a fucking like big paying six figure job. He just like, all right, I got to do the right thing. I got to, you know, stay clean and help other people. That's just a fucking miracle, man. It is. Like, you know, and, and that's what I like about recovery in general is that you just see people that were complete fuck ups get their lives together and they become really inspiring. So I don't know. That's, that's what I love about it. But you know, it doesn't help you when it's like 1030 at night in April of 2020. And it's like, uh, I hate the way I feel right now. Yeah. And everywhere you look, it's just gloom and doom. And it's, it's sometimes hard to find that silver lining. But again, that's why we show up for each other. Like, that's, That's why we show up. That's what we're doing right now. You and I are helping each other. People are going to hear this, uh, whether they're in recovery or whether they're in the throes or somewhere in the middle. And if we can reach a person or two that's like, wow, those dudes dealt with this. And, you know, it's just solidarity and safety in numbers. And There's, there's a lot of resources out there for, for people. Because the thing about checking out, you know, whether it's suicide or relapsing or whatever, it's a bad thought. It's a moment that, if that moment overwhelms you and you can't get out, then it could be, you know, that's it. Yep. Especially in the fentanyl era. Yeah, no, fentanyl, literally, that's pretty much kept me away from that drug. Same. Scares me. Scares the living shit out of me. But, you know, put three or four beers in me and then, then it's really dangerous. Exactly. That's what I mean about the loss of judgment is like, you know, you might be, you know, off the shit and don't have any inclination but a couple beers in somebody makes a suggestion and you you don't think straight so that's good to acknowledge that too man and you know you've got support of thousands of your fans all over the country all different scenes so just know we love you we support you and uh we really appreciate that you're still with us because it sounds like there are a few close calls along the way oh yeah i get reminded of them i forget about them i was somewhere i played a gig and dude was like I remember you were in our apartment, it was Lawrence, and you, you shot a bunch of cocaine, and you fell on the floor, and we thought you would all just, you'd fucking die, because they were just snoring, I'd just put my shit in my rig and go. And he goes, and you flopped around like a fish, and then you stood up, and you go, all right, I gotta go play my gig, and you just walked out. Let's <laughs> drug talk. Yeah, let's so, move on to from junk to punk. I know you've got something dropping. And I, I talk about this in my bio, but, I mean... That's what I got into because it felt real and it felt good. But, you know, I was going to music school at North Texas State University, which is like, you know, back in the 80s, it was like Berkeley and University of Miami where Chaco went. Of course, uh, there were a few other ones, but. Was that Denton? Know, is that Denton? Denton, that's where I met yeah, that. They crank them out there. That's where I met Earl before I saw the Bad Brains. That, that same year, 86, so I was 21 then. I saw Art Blakey play at Caravan Dreams. I saw Arnett Coleman play. I saw Tony Johnson play. I mean, Tony Williams. You know, so like the thread between intense, to me it was the same. Like seeing Art Blakey play was also equally mind-blowing. He was at the end of his, he was up there in the years. And, you know, from what I've heard, he was a lifelong junk addict, but he was able to manage it. 
but he played with so much intensity. It was just as intense as CNHR do his thing. Like, when he started that thing that we all know Art Blakey for, it was incredible. And, and, and watching Tony Williams play, I saw Tony twice. You know, seeing hmm. Elvin Jones play, you know, there's just this intensity between all music of passion and, and reaching, I, you know, there was that communion, communion between the fans and, and their spiritual shamanistic God experience, whatever you want to call it, you know, I mean, that's what we're missing right now is that, that ritual, as corny yes. as it might sound, it no, is it's a true. ritual. That's why people will pay 2500 bucks to go on the jam cruise and watch music nonstop. Yep. Because they love the ritual and that communion with God or their goddess or the universe or whatever it is. Uh, Mescalito. Whoever the fuck it is, they're <laughs> going to that deeper spot. And so to me, like, that's probably why, you know, there's always that connection between, uh, Creatives and the dark night of the soul and the release of opiates and then why so many people like Pharaoh Saunders and Sonny Rollins. I mean, Sonny and Pharaoh are still on the planet. Dope thing. And then they found meditation and higher states of consciousness. And to, to get past that and, and to still be able to create the music, you know, even more, even deeper, more profound. Even deeper. Well, you're so you're in Denton, and you're you're in the punk thing, but you're also amongst like the most brilliant musicians. Well, I, was a, I was a jazz nerd. I was in the one o'clock. I was in the okay. Was studying marimbas. I was in the marching line. I, we won PASIC twice. You know, I was like a music school kid. I was doing my work, and it was when I discovered punk rock that my whole thinking went from I'm going to be a music school band director. To like, and I was had just joined a band. To like, no, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna gig. You know, I'm not gonna. I want to be in this scene. This is what I want to do. So, I sort of came at the punk rock scene from like the music school nerd who just stumbled into a punk rock show, and that and, and Deep Ellum was hanging was down in Dallas, right. So I moved from Denton and started hanging out down in Dallas, and that was. That segued from Tin Hands to Billy Goat. Um, but, you know, there were bands back before Tin Hands I was just sitting in and playing with. And it was cool. You know, even like at the punk rock club, they would have the jazz night when this, um, this keyboardist and Brad Hauser from Edie Brickell's band and Critters and all, he plays with me still. And then like this great sax player, Shelly Carroll, who ended up playing with the Mercer Ellington band. And, you know, uh, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's all sort of connected. You can, There's more crossover than you realize. You know, to me, I always say, I always joke that Thelonious Monk was the first punk rock, or Mingus was the first. You know, to me, punk rock isn't about like playing. Na, 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 it's more like just the attitude of like we're going to do our own thing, create our own path. I mean, some of the least punk rock stuff is stuff that's just generic. You know, it's like look at the old SST days. Yeah, Minutemen and the, and the Meat Puppets and Sonic Youth and Bad Brains and Black Flag, they all sound pretty different. Yeah, completely. Completely different, but it was punk rock. And, and and that was what I heard from those first few shows was the spirit of like, go start your own band. You know, 
And even that, have you read that Beastie Boys book? Oh, yeah. I saw the play. They did it, like, as a play. And then I, I have the book, too. Yeah, it's... it's All those bands are with that, that Black Flag show. Yep. And they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this. This is cool. Yeah, the, the roots of so much were born in, the, in that scene, that lower Manhattan, lower east side, like, you know, the Bad Brains, the Cro-Mags, like, all that downtown New York stuff. It's been an education for me. I like to think I know a thing or two, but... You know, you unpacked a lot here for, for people to explore in terms of yeah. the connection. Um, you know, and I saw the BCs on that. Did you see that Check Your Head tour where they had Mike Wad and Basehead together? But no, my first BC show was in 94. was the Ill Communication. Oh, that's a good tour to see. Yeah, it was bigger, though. They were still doing nightclubs. Check Your Head's my favorite record of theirs. I'm a hardcore BC fan. And, and to me, that's like the, the most... I love Paul's. You know, Paul's was maybe like more revolutionary, but... But uh, I just lo- check your head is just perfect to me. You know, it's funny. That's what I love about music. It's like I can revisit stuff and go, "Oh my god, that was genius at the time." Maybe my own ego got in the way of really appreciating it, or the fact that, like, well, guess what? I'm listening to fucking the meters all the time, and look at all the music that the meet. Like, I really feel like the meters influenced check your head so much. They did. They the Beastie said it in in the in the book or in the play. Yeah got to that chapter yet but you know it's just oh i'm sorry i didn't mean to spoil it (laughs) no no it's fine you know i've been reading it like a toilet read anyway i'm like taking a taking a crap and like all right let's read a chapter of the bc's book and um but so i jump around in it but yeah you know that's what's amazing about music just the thread of it all and then every time i hear the bc's record now i'm just like ah it sounds so good the production and you know and that's the other thing i've been learning a lot too during the pandemic, it's just like, I mean, the art of making records is so much more than just going in and playing. It's like the art of knowing what this mic pre does with this mic or, you know, how you place it in front. And, you know, and guys, is, you know, sit in the studio all the time. They, they're really good at it. Just like guys that play live gigs are really good at playing live gigs, you know. So there is a lot to learn still. And that's what's beautiful about music. It's just like, you never stop learning, especially being a percussionist. It's like, all right, I have no reason to be bored and sit around feeling sorry for myself. There is music to learn. You know, like, okay, I don't feel like writing music today. I'm going to study. Oh, remember that time you played on the jam cruise and Benny Bloom called up four? Why don't you, like, really know that song so the next time he calls it, you're not, like, folding on it and sucking. You know, I doubt I'll ever play four. Right. Years, but, <laughs> like, we, we playing that tune the other couple weeks ago because I didn't feel like doing anything else. There's just always something to work on. Practicing, you know, that was one great thing music school gave me was the fear of sucking and knowing you suck so you got to practice all the time. Definitely like, even in the junk days, I would just sit over my vibraphone for hours practicing and, and I got my little ritual that even when I was on, I'm on tour, I'm able to get my practice in a little bit here and there, especially with the tabla every morning in a hotel. So, you know, that's what we all got to do, push each other. You know, I know that Stan Moore's up practicing his fucking brushes bright and early. I'm saying fuck too much today. Yeah, Stan's practicing a lot. You know, Matt's practicing. You know, everyone I know is, Skerrick is practicing somewhere. And then there are guys that just don't practice, you know. They don't. And that's cool, too. It's like the dope thing. Oh, you don't do dope? Oh, you're an AA guy. You're a fucking we dude. You're a yoga dude. Fucking cool. Let's all get together and celebrate <laughs> the fact that we're alive. Same, same yeah. way with music. 
I had one friend, he's like, oh, man, I haven't touched my base since the last tour we did. <laughs> That cracked me up. I did want to touch on the punkadelic thing. You referenced it earlier. I promised oh, yeah. Kevin I would talk to you about it. He gave me a sneak peek. What's going on with Mike Dillon punkadelic? Well, my music is sort of like punk rock, but it's also got all this jazz influence. It's got psychedelic. It's just, you know, all these different influences, and I've never really had a name for it. And one day, Brooks and Norwell were talking, and they're like, man, this music is punkadelic. I'm like, why didn't I ever think of that? So at first I thought Norwood came up with the term, but it was actually Brooks's term. And we just started calling it Mike Dillon and Punkadelic. And then for this um, release, I was just like, you know what? That's what I'm going to call it because I got, you know, all those people from all over just collaborating. It's a giant internet psychedelic uh, punk rock explosion it's got funk, you know, we're really like, a lot of these songs, we're going for like, butthole surfers meets the zombies, or like, super psychedelic elements, and um, also, it was sort of like, okay, let's pretend that this is like if Brian Eno and David Byrne were both speed freaks in Kansas City, and they cleaned up, and they stopped doing speed, but they started making records, you know, just, <laughs> Different concepts like that. And, of course, it's like, well, it's COVID. We can do whatever we want. And, you know, Beef Hard, and the engineer, you know, Chad, he, he knows all this shit. His dad's an amazing B3 uh, organ player. His dad's blind. Does, I mean, like, Dr. Lonnie would be like, oh, man, Greg Mize, he's the dude with the feats, you know? And, like, <laughs> like, like those guys, you know, a lot of people from his band would go, play uh jimmy mcgriff took you know hired uh, some of chad's dad's guitar players you know chad's a, his dad's a great jazz musician in his 70s nearly 80 lived out in la and in san francisco and the bay and the and, the, and las vegas wherever he's working but like he had this guitar player that would like, hey Chad, the Dead Kennedys are playing, and take twelve year old Chad to see the Dead Kennedys, or the next night they'd go see Frank Sinatra. So Chad saw all this amazing music, and then got into the, you know, his dad gave him an ARP when he was like ten years old. Like instead of getting a Nintendo, he got like an ARP. Oh man! So he's just he's a really good musician, but he's mainly just been into sound. And so like you, you you go, oh man, I want to sound like the Butthole Surfers meets Captain Beefheart. He knows how to make that happen, and that's, like, really an important process. Just like the Daptones, like what those guys are doing and, like, that their whole recording. You know, th those they knew how to get the sounds they wanted, so I'm really digging having a person that, that I'm working with these days that, you know, oh, I want it to sound like Martin Denny meets the Dead Kennedys. Well, he knows how to make that happen because he, he is a total Martin Denny freak, you know? Not everyone knows Martin Denny. That's the but, first uh, time you stumped me, this whole conversation. I followed you down all the rabbit holes, but I don't know Martin Denny, so give us well, a brief, Martin, brief uh, background. Martin Denny and Les Bastard were the, were the kings of Exotica, uh, records like Quite Village. It's almost like Bachelor Lounge music. Okay. Um, and it was jazzy, but it's sort of corny. But there was a certain, like, it's like they were doing it in Hawaii, like Martin Denny was. And he was packing venues, 
he played piano. He had a vice player, a maroon player. He also had a percussionist. And he had a full-time bird caller, bird whistler. So, like that song Tiki Bird Whistle on, on, on Rosewood. And also did a version with Eddie for uh, Color Red. He a great version with him. You know, that's totally inspired by Exotica and that, that music. Okay, so, right on. Chamberlain, Chamberlain when he heard Rosewood, he's like, dude, you're the punk rock Martin Denny, you know. So and that's so that's a music to your ears because you were going for that to hear like somebody like Matt who you know all these years and create he knew where you were going just by hearing the music what you were trying yeah, to accomplish you know like for someone like Matt to like email texting dude go dude I heard your new record I love it it's awesome I mean you gotta you know Matt you know I can like I remember we right before the pandemic tour we were opening for someone cool i seen you a picture of who I, I was like dude we're opening for this guy you know i'm still a moronic fan of music and uh and he goes oh dude i'm recording with this guy it was a picture of bob dylan you know so <laughs> and, and guess what bob dylan's drummer is part of the punkadelic thing he's he's you know matt's on two tracks uh is it just so, sort of like random assortments of players on this track or that track, or is there a core group for this project? It's sort of random, but there is a core group. Um, Matt and Earl did the drums. I did drums on some on a bunch of it too. And then I was able to get JP for one song on drums. So, and then Gogo Ray was in town. So, after we did our first live stream together, I was like, man. You want to come to the studio? I need drums on one song. Uh, and I ended up writing a song, two songs. One song that I did with Punkadelic in Norwood and then back in January out in L.A. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to recut it for this this release with Go-Go. And then I, I wrote a new one called Quiet as a Mouth. So th- that was the, dr- the drummer arsenal for this set of, of songs. And then Nathan did most of the bass work on this record, and James Singleton did some upright on a song when he was in town. And then C. Hag and Shane Dario played guitar. Shane's an amazing, you know, he's like the, the New Orleans guy. That right. He goes between L.A. and New Orleans, but he's just, you know, he's played with everyone. He can get any sound you want. You know, he's versatile enough to, like, play like a traditional jazz song or get a guitar tune, you know, if you say no matter what, like I need a Nashville chicken picket, you know, kind of vibe or let's get, you know. All all purpose player, he can do it all. He can do it all. So he's great. He did a bunch, he and she had the guitar stuff and Brooks, he plays in my band, did guitar. And then Nathan did the, I already said that, the bass. And then Tiff from The Givers has done some background vocals and then, I did a lot of, you know, my normal vibes and marimba and percussion stuff and rants and vocals. But this is the first record where I really, a lot of the songs are based on what I was coming up with, with my synths. Um, I got a mood and I got this uh, other poly synth and another paraphonic synth. And a lot of songs just started with like drum machines and synth parts and we fleshed them out. And there's some songs that there's not even, uh, there's no actual, like, vibraphone. It's just electronic, like, Malakat. Like, on one tune, it's, uh, I played the drums and percussion. Nathan played bass. And it's uh, tons of Malakat, weird synth sounds. And uh, 
you know, I've met Nick Payton a couple of times over the years and sent him the track. And to my surprise, he agreed to record on it. Oh, amazing. Yeah, he's on one track. And what he did is just like, I played it for James and goes, I don't know who that is. And I go, he goes, is that Ornette Coleman playing? He goes, sounds like Ornette Coleman played trumpet. Wow. And I go, well, Nick took it out for me, you know, and that he's playing trumpet on it. And, and it's really cool. And he was cool. We just chopped it up and, and he looked and, and made it, made it even weirder because he had put a bunch of effects on it and freaked out. So got him on the track and then a tune with Chamberlain. I got it's me and Chamberlain and, and Shane on slide guitar. And then Steven Bernstein did like slide trumpet, like nine tracks. He took two months working on it. And it's just this beautiful slide trumpet orchestra. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. And then, you know, like on the tune with the, with JP, it's called Kool-Aid Man. I was calling it American Nazi, but it's just straight up. It sounds like Mike D meets the Queens meets uh, Dead Kennedys and Sea Hag. I'm like, dude, just give me an over-the-top epic fucking guitar solo on it. And and when Nathan heard it, he's like, dude, kids are going to be learning your song, your solo from that one. It's just, it's just how it is. It's over-the-top arena rock guitar solo. It's like anything you see Hag to do, he, and you ask him to do it, he nails it. And uh, then other stuff is like Brian Eno meets fucking Steve Wright meets Tortoise. You know, there's that kind of vibe. And there's some, I've really been into Nine Inch Nails. I didn't really, I thought they were cool back in the 90s, but I got to say, like, more than ever, and he's another sober guy. Mm-hmm. I fucking love Nine Inch Nails and what Trent does. He's just like, I have to, you know, I have to, like, not listen to him someday. I haven't been listening to him, but there for a while, this, on all the driving, it's just like, if I got a night drive, putting on Nine Inch Nails, all the production and stuff Trent and Atticus does do together is really cool. Like, whatever Trent and Atticus do, is, with, like it or not, it's always something that's really not been done before and wholly their own. Yeah, and, you know, and I've seen at Singer Theater Thanksgiving 2018. It was incredible. I bet. Great. Great show. I've seen him now five times. And it's sort of funny to realize, like, oh, wow. I was never like, oh, my God, Nine Inch Nails was my favorite band. But over the years, i got to say, you know, yeah, he's definitely one of my favorites. You know, it's like I've seen Primus probably by just good fortune of playing with Les. I've probably seen them more than any band from my generation. Because, yeah, I saw that Primus Fishbone tour back in 92. Wow. Fucking incredible, dude. I mean... I mean, another band, like, to play with Norwood, and, like, you, you got me on a good coffee day. I'm just, like, going off, but, you know, you go to these shows, and they were just, like, life-changing, like, Primus and Fishbone together. It was fucking, we just all were stage-diving going nuts for fucking hours. I can imagine. The glory days. So I'm excited. About yeah. It. I, I, it's cohesive. You know, that's the one good thing about having a, a wife who's an artist, is I don't agree with everything she says, maybe not everything, but being around an artist and the way they work, a visual artist, you know, I've always had women in my life that have taught me a lot about art. Um, you know, my, Same. my ex is a great art curator. She's taught me a lot about it. And then my first, you know, my first wife, yeah, you know, she was way into art. So like, you know, it's just, it's important also to seek other influences besides just music. But, uh, so, 
it's, it's good having like someone like an artist just to play your stuff off of and see what they think about it just from that initial reaction of an artist's eyeball, you know? Oh yeah. Well, she, and she's been writing, I, I'm a shitty lyricist. I mean, I write about like my dick and like drugs or whatever. <laughs> and she's really challenged me to like write about deeper things and she's I'm, I'm like why don't we just collaborate on it you know i've never had someone i write lyrics with and it is really cool just like when you're in a band i love together. that yeah and you're like you know when scarek and i were that's the thing i miss most about being in bands with scarek like dead kennedy's and even like the last critters record i would have an idea and he'd have an idea you know it's the band thing you're when you're writing together as a band so it felt a bit like a band as well because we were collaborating on a lot of the lyrics and I'd be like, Hey, you know, there's one song about, you know, an experience she had with, with her dog, Benier, with our dog, Benier. And it's, that song is called, uh, psilocybin donut. And, uh, <laughs> about her trip. She took a while back with Benier where he started talking to her for four hours. You know, like I don't do psychedelics, but believe me, I used to, I know how powerful they are, and I believe that, oh, you're, the dog talked to you for four hours? I believe yeah. that. You it know, can happen, for sure. It, it can happen. Just like this tree I'm looking at right now. If I was in tune enough, that tree, well, it is talking to me. But anyway, so yeah, that's uh, what what's happening was, that's sort of the, the, the concept for... Punkadelic? Uh, and the record, Shoot the Moon. Yeah, and there's one of the great guitars who collaborated on the first song, and that's Nick Bockrath. You know Nick? He's another Philly. He plays with Cage the Elephant now. He's like the younger, he's like Metzger and Seahat. Yeah, I mean, I know the name, but I, I don't know him like I know Scotty or Robbie. Yeah, you know, he's he's in Cage, and he lives in Nashville now. He did fucking an amazing guitar track for me. So it, it really is like just a chance to call up my pals. I know I'm forgetting people and be like, hey, you want, I need something for this record. Can you do it? So there was a lot of that. Uh, Brad Walker, sax player, with Sturgill Simpson, a New Orleans guy. Yeah, I've he seen did, him in New Orleans for sure. He's done a couple of tracks for me on. Um, and then for this one song, "Quiet as a Mouse," we have literally 123 tracks, including a choir at the end, where I got everyone I could. Cliff Hines sang. He also did a bunch of modular synths for me on the record. Um, Jay from Fruition sang on it. Um, JJ Jungle from the Harry Apes is singing, sharing lead with me. I sang it out. I sent the track out to every vocalist. Even like I sent it to David Shaw. He's like, I'll get back with you. So he, you know, he hasn't sent me back a track yet, but that's been the spirit of it. Like I send it out and if they get back to me, awesome. If they that's don't, great. I love that. Blueprint. That's awesome. So there's a lot of collaboration. So that's why I'm calling it Punkadelic. So the greater collaboration, not unlike Funkadelic, where it's just, you're pulling people from all the different things. I like that. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned Trent, and maybe we'll finish here. Um, the the version of Hurt on Rosewood, uh, which yeah. is, I guess, you're interpolating Johnny Cash's arrangement, but, you know, doing a cover is one thing, doing a cover of a cover is another thing, but the, it floored me, dude. I'm not just saying this, you know, I would have said it earlier, but we just kind of got to it. But it, it was it was such an emotional exercise to just... I did it before anything this morning. I mean, I'd listened to it before, but today I just put it on just fresh out of bed before the coffee. Um, and it floored me, man. It's such an emotional reading 
uh, I was just curious, like how that came about or why you chose that song. Any kind of reflections you have about that particular number? Yeah, you know, it's like what on my record functioning broke. It was all about you know interpreting Elliot Smith songs on the vibraphone. Yeah, you and, do that a lot too. You you love his. You know, I, he's the other guy I'm obsessed with. I I will not. I, I'm obsessed with Elliot Smith. I'm obsessed with the Queens of the Stone Age. Blah blah blah. You know, bands from my generation that I like, whatever. But yeah, I mean Johnny Cash's version. I mean, we've all had our heart broke listening to that the first time or what. It was just so heavy. Anytime I listen to it, so heavy. And the last song they did, in, uh, Nine Inch Nails did, they closed with Hurt, and they walked off the stage. It was powerful. You know, it's a great song. And I remember when that song came out, hearing about the drummer he used to play with, Nine Inch Nails. He had committed suicide. He also worked with ministry. This guy, Jeff Ward, I think was his name. Um, you know, the industrial scene and, and that, that that whole scene, like, we would be playing gigs, and you'd see Al Jorgensen walk through through the club. So it was always sort of like this parallel universe of badasses that were doing their own thing. So I've always had the respect for, and, and most of those guys hated the word industrial. Um, that was they like, just kind of made that up so there was a area to put the album in Tower Records. You know that's why they do the genre shit. But anyway. You know, Trent song and, and all, you know, the more I got, and I was just like, I don't know, just sort of like all the shit I was going through and years of my own addiction and, um, you know, I think people that are, are drug addicts really do have problems just dealing with life as it is. And part of life is dealing with relationships with other people. And, I remember asking someone about who knew Trent about, I asked them about Trent and they were like, well, you know, I think he's not only an alcoholic or drug addict, but he has, you know, a, a relationships or whatever. So, you know, I, I know that like all my relationships, I've had so many great relationships that have gone afile or gone awry, not just romantic relationships, but whenever you have falling out with someone you really love dearly, um, whether it's just like said or unsaid or you know whenever that relationship comes to an end sometimes amicable there's always that huge emotion of like oh wow I'm not going to be on tour with that person all the time anymore or, oh wow I'm not going to wake up and make her coffee anymore because it wasn't working or, or whatever so I don't know those lyrics lend themselves to that sort of sentiment. Yes. And that's, you know, for instrumental music. I mean, you know, Miles listened to Sinatra all the time. There I go quoting jazz stuff, but I read his autobiography. You know, and for me, that's just like, I don't know. I deal with my depression I have through playing really fucked up sad songs. It makes me happy for some reason. Inside of playing Elliot Smith songs, you know, I can be having a horribly depressed day and, playing one of his depressed songs makes me happy so when I started learning Hurt I was just like wow this really works well on a mechanical musical level I mean you know just playing the, the arpeggio with the left hand playing the melody and really trying to make it speak you know because the vibraphone is a very it's a bunch of bars that ring forever 
you know. So the challenge with me is, uh, is trying to make that music sound expressive. Like, I mean, a tenor so a tenor play, a tenor saxophone, or you know, alto. Those, you know, trump. When you're putting wind through a horn, it is like singing. You know, you're able to sing. So, on on just a musical level, those songs, I, I'm trying to create emotion and like convey that feeling. And to hear you say that you get that when I, that to me, that that's more important than any money or anything. You know, I, I know I first started playing it and I saw people crying out in the crowd and, and Peregrine, and she was like, wow, that, that, that got us tonight. I've had quite a few people say that, you know, and I'm not trying to make people cry, but I mean, I've played with Ricky Lee for four years now and every time she plays we belong together or a couple of her really heartfelt breakup songs they fucking get you down the yeah. course some nights. some nights i'm like god damn it i didn't want to cry tonight <laughs> crying again fuck you <laughs> like wiping tears out you know behind the drum set you know and to i me, love that's that right. it's amazing and and so i i can't i'm not a great vocalist i can only rant but so i have to try to get that emotion by playing my vibraphone, my as Claypool calls it, the electric doorbell machine. Well, I'm here to attest that it definitely brings the feels and tears, and it's a worthy successor from Nine Inch Nails to Johnny Cash to your version. Just really emblematic of of what the power of music. So different. Each of the renderings of the song, like sonically, couldn't be more different. Yet the thread of of emotion and longing loneliness or resolve to start the next chapter everything you expressed about how the relationship dovetails and the emotions attached to it yes just wanted to thank you for that and say it worked the electric doorbell machine will make you cry so uh that feels like a good spot to jump off man we did like a hundred minutes which is great beautiful well it's great talking to you b and um i hope we cross paths soon yeah from your lips to jaw ears mike d thank you for the music you're welcome, brother. We'll Much talk. love. Yes, indeedy. want to say large up and give thanks to my man, Mike D. Mike Dillon. Just a fascinating and thrilling, sometimes horrifying, sometimes hilarious dialogue with a true unicorn. So please check out all things Mike Dillon. You can find him, Mike Dillon, on Facebook, MikeDillonBand.Bandcamp. He's got stuff on Royal Potato Family Records on their site, and he's all over the place. Um, So please uh, support independent artists like Mike by checking out all the different music he has on offer. 
just incredible to speak with him. He was so honest, so frank, um, and so raw at times. And a bunch of that was around his journey through the disease of addiction. So if you are struggling with substance abuse or addiction or know someone and love someone that is, please seek, reach out for help. There are a plethora of options available. Feel free to shoot me an email, b.getz at upfullife.com, or check out Dopey Podcast, The Dopey Nation, Alt Recovery Movement. It's at the forefront, and it's an amazing community that will love you up however you are. So with that said, like we always do about this time, the Vibe Junkie Jams. So yeah, we're going to start with Garage A Trois at the Sanger Theater, May 4th, 2000. We talked about it at length in the interview with Mike D. Uh, this is a real crucial concert and life experience for me as I uh, went to my first jazz fest in May of 2000 primarily because of this show the headliners were Oysterhead's first ever Convergence Trey from Fish, Les from Primus and Stu Copeland from The Police a cosmic convergence indeed, I could not miss it so I uh, paid $200 which was well over face plus 10 uh, CDRs of the fish uh, in exchange for a ticket to the show. I flew myself down from college in Vermont to New Orleans. I'd been there once before on Fish Tour in 99. I did not know what to expect with Jazz Fest, um, and I've been back 17 times since. It is a essential part of my journey, and it all began in 2000 and really at this show. And Grajatois was just as unknown as Oysterhead, even less so, even though they had some all-stars like a Charlie Hunter and a Skerek and a Stanton Moore and Mike Dillon. Uh, we didn't know, you know, so uh, I walked in there pretty green. I knew to not miss the opening act, and I was rewarded with a really just otherworldly life experience and... I wanted to pay tribute to that by playing a good bit of the Chifuncta here and in the background right now. Chifuncta, T-C-H-F-U-N-K-T-A. I believe it's a Stanton Moore joint. Uh, classic sound from Garage A Trois and many of Stanton's projects. Um, it's kind of like the soundtrack to that next frontier post-Big Cypress first jazz fest and, and Garage is really the soundtrack to the changing of the guard, if you will. So I'm going to play uh, this wacky heavy metal jam that they close down the Sanger with. And then we're going to hear Mike's version of Hurt, the Nine Inch Nails song that was interpolated and reimagined by Johnny Cash. And that's sort of the version that Mike Dillon performs, but he is a huge Nine Inch Nails fan, as he explained. Song is so personal, so hauntingly beautiful that uh, I wanted to close out episode 39 of the Up for Life podcast with Mike Dillon's Hurt, which is found on his most recent solo album, Rosewood, on Royal Potato Family Records. Shout out Kevin Calabro, who made this happen much like he did for Carl D. That dude is a winner. And yeah, 
that'll wrap things up for uh, episode 39 of the Up for Life podcast. Uh, I'd like to wish everyone out there safety, sanity, health, happiness, good vibrations, healing, energy, and all that jazz as we barrel into 2021. Um, So much that could be said, but I'll leave it at that. Goodbye, job less, and we'll see you next time.